And hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative on a Tuesday night at 7 p.m. on the East Coast, 4 p.m. on the West Coast. We are uh, pretty smart in the show because we booked Max Chafkin uh, many, many weeks ago. And we knew, of course, that Facebook was going to be a big story today. That's how good we are. Isn't that right, Heidi? Oh, it's incredible. Yes, we have the author of The Contrarian, the new Peter Thiel book, and we have a lot of viewer questions already coming in. So just know that I'm already on the lookout for questions in the chat. This is an interesting book because most people would have been advised not to write a book about Peter Thiel because of of his gawker history. So Max Chavkin is really uh, very, very brave to have done this book. And it's a fantastic book. We'll go into it in detail. We'll find out all about Peter Thiel's history, his motivations, and where he is today and maybe what he's up to in the future. So all of that's coming up on Narrative as we continue the show tonight. But first, it's time for the starting block. All right, we're going to talk about the Facebook fallout. Silicon Valley tech company has had very little accountability, very little transparency. That's going to change. They're clearly in the hot seat. They're being compared to big tobacco. Those are some big words that we heard today at the Senate hearing where the whistleblower who delivered troves of evidence that Facebook hides its own research and puts profits over people, and even went as far to say that they should declare moral bankruptcy. Yesterday's outage, of course, um, Facebook says was not malicious, but it did result in the company losing $65 million and halting entire economies. Well, I mean, it certainly was significant and interestingly timed. It is interesting, you always do point out, that they're comparing it to big tobacco, and that came out of um Blumenthal. Blumenthal, thank you. Yeah, uh, he really did bring that up early on, and that's impressive. He also said he got a lot of calls and emails from his constituents saying that their kids had been either had eating disorders, committed suicide, or various other really real-life impacts that have happened to their kids, and they really wanted action. It sounds like they're going to take this one seriously, and it sounds like there's uh, you know agreement on both sides of the aisle there. So that's definitely big news and worth following. That's uh, following the uh, whistleblowers speaking today. There's also this big news that happened today. We've been waiting. We've been calling for Merrick Garland to give us some idea of what he's doing with Donald Trump. Is there actually a prosecution that is going to take place? Well, he gave us a little something today, not a complete confirmation, but a little bit of a hint when he said that, you know, there's basically FBI policy and DOJ policy not to comment on pending investigations. That made me feel, I think, that that means that they are, in fact, investigating Donald Trump. You know, you could read it another way, but I think he would have said something differently if that was the case. So it's finally good to get Mary Garland on the record on that one. Yeah, we've been asking him to signal. That may have been a signal. So we also have some really interesting news today. NYPD union raid. Not only did the FBI raid the largest New York uh, union for both retired and police sergeants in New York, they also went to the home of the president. And what's interesting about that is about a year ago, he appeared on Fox News with a QAnon mug in the background. (laughs) As one does when you're part of the police force. Yeah, why not? I mean, it's interesting. You know, this the sergeant's union is very, very powerful in New York. And uh, anyone who spent any time covering local news as I have in New York City, 
you know that these guys are very influential and always in a very political way. I would say they're pretty allied to the likes of Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump. I mean, that's obviously how they get a lot of their influence in the cities through these unions. It's going to be really interesting to see what information they found out in his uh, home and what documents they were able to retrieve from that. So that's the news today. That's the starting block. And coming up next, we'll talk to Max Chaifkin about his book, The Contrarian. It's a brilliant read. It's all about Peter Thiel. And we'll talk about the very controversial, very enigmatic Peter Thiel right after this. We'll be right back. Hi, friends. Thank you for watching Narrative. And today's show is brought to you by Policy Genius. There's no better time to apply for life insurance. It's not just the temperatures falling. Life insurance rates can go up with each year you delay buying. With Policy Genius, you can compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. You can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing those quotes at Policy Genius. That translates to about $1,300 or more on life insurance by using Policy Geniuses to compare policies. Policy Genius licensed experts work for you, not insurance companies, so you can trust them to guide you through every step of the insurance buying process. Thousands of five star reviews on Trustpilot and Google attest to Policy Genius's excellent service. You can get covered in as little as a week thanks to their award winning policy that does away with medical exams in favor of a simple phone call. This exclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes, higher than any options from Ladder, Ethos, and Bestow. Just head to policygenius.com and in minutes, work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. Policy Genius will handle the paperwork and scheduling for free. They never sell your information to other companies or add on extra fees. Head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius, when it it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Hi, uh, Max Chafkin. How are you? Welcome to the show. Hey, Zeb. Hey, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, delightful to be here and uh, excited to talk about this. I feel like we couldn't have picked a better day. It really is a big news day um, when it comes to Facebook. And uh, Peter Thiel, just so everybody remembers, is a, is a first investor in Facebook. I mean, he's, he's a big part of the Facebook story. And as you found out, also a big part of telling Mark Zuckerberg, what to do maybe, maybe being his maker, maybe being his puppeteer, I don't know. But how would you describe uh, Peter Thiel to Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah, well, I, I want to push back in a couple of places, but hopefully augment what you're saying, because mm -hmm. I think it's really important. So nobody controls Mark Zuckerberg, right? This is part of the problem with Facebook, I, I would argue, is that you know Zuckerberg is basically the absolute dictator of this media platform that reaches more people than any other in human history. You know, he's one of the most powerful people who's ever lived and he's unelected and there, and there are very few checks on, on his power, including um, his own board of directors. And Peter Thiel, as you said, was the first investor in Facebook and he is the person who set that up. So if you've seen the social network, you, you remember that the central conflict in the social network is between Zuckerberg and his co-founder or erstwhile co-founder. And there's this kind of maneuver that Zuckerberg pulls that causes him to get control of the company. And that maneuver was engineered with help from Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel is the outside investor. He makes a very brief appearance in the movie itself. And he's the person who set Zuckerberg up the way he's set up, which is to say, CEO, founder, and complete control of the board of directors. And you know, obviously, Facebook has these structures in place, but it's not clear to what extent you know, those structures are able to contain Zuckerberg or contain Facebook's power. And it's also not clear, you know, we're seeing uh, Facebook in front of Congress. It's not clear to what extent even, you know, the U.S. government or any government has really been able to get its arms around this platform. Now, that is partly Peter Thiel's responsibility. The second thing that is Peter Thiel's responsibility, and I, we can definitely get to Trump, but I think it's important to say this right up front. 
this idea that Facebook owes nothing to no one, that it can just sort of ignore its responsibility, say, to, to, you know, to the mental well-being of its teenage users, that it can ignore, as we're learning from this whistleblower, mm. it was effectively covering up you know, information that it had, not giving it to Congress when asked directly. Um, this kind of disdain for institutions, this idea that tech companies and particular tech billionaires should do whatever they can to get as big as possible, as quick as possible, that they should be willing to break the rules. And not just that breaking the rules is something that's morally acceptable, but almost that it's better to do so. That all comes from Peter Thiel. That is the Thiel ideology. And I would argue that's the most important part of the Thiel ideology. And it's funny because we're seeing there are two stories going on, right? There's the congressional thing, but then there's also Facebook going down yesterday. But it going down yesterday, it it wasn't just Facebook. It was WhatsApp, Instagram, all of these apps. And that also is related to Peter Thiel because a big part of the kind of Thiel worldview is that these big tech companies should seek monopoly. They shouldn't just, you know, try to make a great product and be compensated for it. They should control a market. And of course, Facebook controls a market. And now we see the effects. The effects are if there's a problem. Now, who knows what caused it? But if there's a problem, it causes not just Facebook to go down, but these other, you know, possibly competing services go down. And you could see how that would get really scary for us as a society if Facebook got any more power. It's so fascinating. We talk about the move fast and break things policy of Facebook, which is really does seem like it's inspired by Peter Thiel. But he's such a guy of contradiction, as, as, as you point out in the book. And of course, the title, The Contrarian, you know, some people think of him as a mastermind. They think of him as one of the smartest brains in Silicon Valley. You know, he's worth $3 billion. He's clearly a real kingmaker in technology and politics. You know, he's a nonconformist for sure. And he's a gay conservative. Those are all very hard things to find. But on the other hand, you know, he's also a white nationalist, a money launderer, a lawbreaker, suspected money launderer, I'd say. You know, he's also a bit of a gay homophobe, a warmongerer, and he's also the person who killed Gawker. I mean, these are all not good things on his side, and it speaks to this real contradiction that exists in everything he does. Can you explain that in terms of Mark Zuckerberg's and Facebook's sort of reluctance to conform with the system or to follow the system? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot there, and I want to just clarify a couple of things. I mean, I don't think it's clear Teal's a white nationalist. He's definitely somebody who has kind of played footsie with white nationalists or, or looked the other way when that kind of thing ha- has happened. There, there are these anecdotes, and I talk about them in my book, about his comments he's made about apartheid that I think, you know, push right up to the line. But I think your point is a good one. And it's that Thiel has this view that, first of all, this kind of extreme right political view and also extreme libertarian point of view that really boils down to, you know, tech billionaires should be able to do whatever they want. And he has been a huge influence on Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, a lot of people, you know, there's been this like long running conversation, like, is Zuckerberg a liberal or is he a conservative? You know, I would argue he's just Thielist. Like the closest thing to his ideology is what Peter Thiel believes. And that means Facebook should get really big and Zuckerberg should be willing to do what it takes to make the company successful, even if it means, you know, being associated with or allowing themselves to be associated with some really scary things. And I also think that Thiel has been very influential. And this gets to the point that I think you brought up earlier. When Trump was elected, 
there was this meme going around that was especially big within the right that Facebook was a left-leaning social platform. Now, this was, I, I'm going to summarize it, but I, I, don't, I don't think it's true. The basic idea is like these California liberals are discriminating against conservatives and they're basically, it's basically like trying to turn Facebook into the New York Times, right? Mm. Where it's like this lefty social network and they control everything, try to turn them into a, a boogeyman. Now, as I said, I, there are real serious problems with this. And if you talk to anyone who's been active in kind of conservative social media, as I did, they will tell you that it's kind of false, right? Because they were doing great on Facebook in 2016. In fact, Donald Trump, he grew to prominence thanks in part to, to social media. So that wasn't true, but it was really big and important. And Teal kind of stepped in as the person who could stand in between the conservatives and Mark Zuckerberg, basically bringing Facebook a little bit further to the right than it already was, because I would argue it was, it was centrist or maybe even possibly leaning in that direction already, but bring it a little bit, make it a little bit friendlier to these right-leaning platforms and do whatever he could to kind of make Trump uh, go a little easier on Facebook. You know, Trump is railing against and continue to rail against the um, social media companies, you know, bring up points that I think, you know, a lot of Americans agreed with, you know, both on both yeah. sides of the aisle. And Teal, I think, was able to kind of redirect some of that energy towards one of Facebook's biggest competitors, Google. So what you saw in 2016 was, you know, Zuckerberg's under fire. There's this kind of meeting that happened behind closed doors where some of the biggest names in conservative media come to the Facebook campus, Teal is there, and they sort of make peace, right? Mm -hmm. Zuckerberg agrees to make an adjustment to this product that had been controversial, and some of these conservative guys come out and make statements and say, you know what? He's not so bad. Glenn Beck gives, you know, writes this very impassioned, you know, very Glenn Becky blog post that's like about how, you know, Zuckerberg, we, we can, we both believe the same thing, right? And you see that dynamic kind of play out again and again and again, and when people wonder, like, why, why did Facebook allow Donald Trump's campaign in 2019 to claim, uh, basically claim falsehoods about Hunter Biden? Why did they allow, you know, these kind of doctored videos about Nancy Pelosi? Why weren't they like a little more aggressive against, you know, some of these kind of ultra uh, nationalist and right wing movements? And I think it, the answer is both the influence of Peter Thiel ideologically on Zuckerberg. So that's not something he's doing behind the scenes. That's something he's doing in front of the scenes where he is articulating this point, this kind of extreme libertarian point of view. Facebook should just look the other. It doesn't matter what's happening on this platform. It doesn't matter if, if it's getting people killed or if it's causing genocides. We should basically just allow it. And then there's a, a sort of second level, which is the behind the scenes level, which where, where Teal is this broker between Zuckerberg and Trump. And I think both of those things had an impact on how Facebook behaved during the four years of the Trump administration. And I think, you know, it's really important to say, like, people... Um, there are a lot of things here to criticize, right, about Peter Thiel, but you got to kind of respect the brilliance because Facebook did very well under Trump. I mean, you know, its market cap has gone up. Trump did a lot of threatening, but did he? But he didn't actually change anything. And most of the actual kind of political energy was directed at in other areas. Now, yes. I think it's an open question how long that you know whether this this works long term. But I think we, we have to say like it worked pretty well for everybody involved. Um, maybe besides like you know a lot of Americans uh, during that. <laughs> Of time. Well, I mean, you got those, you know, they were the engine of polarization, you could argue, during the whole Trump years. So in, in many ways, of course, they would do well if they're the ones pushing all of that. You know, this, uh, this is a lot from your book. I, I did this chart of Peter Thiel's connections to the Trump campaign and to the Trump movement in general. And boy, there are a lot of people here who are connected. So this is, you know, 
I don't recall a time in American politics, and of course, social media is so young, but I don't recall a time in American politics where you've had a major shareholder of a media company, which is really what you've got to look at as Facebook right now, but you know, a major shareholder having so many connections to the key players in a campaign. I mean, maybe it exists. Maybe, you know, maybe Murdoch has the same kind of connections, but it's certainly unusual for social media. And it's the first time we've ever experienced something like that, as far as I can tell. Well, to, to me, uh, a couple interesting things here. I mean, one is that Teal, even though, as you say, he's got a lot of connections, he did not have, and I don't think even really has today, the kind of like beltway political network. This is something that was created very quickly, very haphazardly, mm -hmm. and I think grew out of his, he had been over the years kind of funneling money and support to, um, you know, these sort of some far right groups and some kind of media provocateurs and things like that. But there wasn't a coordinated, it wasn't coordinated in a conventional sense. It was something very ad hoc, I'd say, and involving, you know, the internet and social media, and to some extent, the alt-right. I think Teal was a very, somebody who realized early that there was a lot of, that, you know, that there was political energy there, that there was something happening, you know, on the internet. This goes back to Ron Paul's, you know, two presidential campaigns. You know, Teal was a, a supporter of Paul both times and a big time supporter in 2012, where he saw that there's this kind of building momentum for like far right, um, you know, blow up the status quo type candidate. And I think that is, you know, that's what he got in Trump. I also think you know, yeah, he's got a lot of connections, but he he did something kind of clever, which is he bought into Trump at a very low point in his campaign. So if you remember, Teal was originally a supporter. Uh, he supported some other candidates. He he supported Carly Ferrarina. There was a dalliance with Ted Cruz. Teal had supported Cruz in other campaigns. So, you know, there it seemed like maybe some chance that Teal would, would back him. And he only comes to Trump kind of towards the end. But at that point, very few people in kind of elite business circles had joined, you know, had gotten on the Trump train. Teal gives a speech at the uh, RNC. You had some pictures up mm. earlier. Uh, I think a lot of people remember it. You know, it was a big moment. It was in prime time. Gave Trump a lot of credibility, but he hadn't actually donated anything to the campaign until October of 2016. And now what happened in October of 2016? Well, a couple days or seven days or so before Teal makes this donation, the Access Hollywood tape drops. And at that point, Trump was at his absolute lowest point. You know, everybody in the world, you know, every respectable Republican is either fully backing away or kind of halfway backing away. Donors are, you know, it's like crickets from the donor class. And then, and Peter Thiel, you know, comes out and says, I'm going to donate a million bucks to this guy. Nice. And that was very significant and gives a speech saying, kind of reframing the Access Hollywood tape, saying this is not a presidential candidate uh, endorsing sexual assault. This is just, you know, uh, Trump is just a colorful guy. We got to take him, as Teal put it, seriously, not literally. And there were other things going on during that period. You know, WikiLeaks, you know, obviously was a huge force in, in kind of reviving Trump's candidacy and changing the media narrative. But I think Teal played an underappreciated role in, that, in driving that media narrative as being kind of the first person from like a kind of respectable, like he's a real businessman kind of thing to back Trump. And I think that is kind of what got him into the inner circle um, come, you know, December, January. That's what gets right. Teal access ultimately to Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and gets Palantir, I, I would argue, um, again, this is a claim in my opinion based on reporting, gets helps get Palantir all these contracts, contracts that, yeah. it, that it got down the road.
You say that he, you know, he was new to the campaign, and, and that's likely what you're saying is 100% correct. But the ideas that he espouses certainly predate all of this. And then they sort of go back to, you know, I guess it was a diversity myth, which is something he wrote in Stanford. You know, he's always had a anti-establishment, anti-globalization, anti-diversity kind of stance. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you, you got to really look at Thiel as kind of one of the intellectual godfathers to the alt-right. I mean, he was directly involved. He was talking to people who were involved with that movement. But when you go back and read the diversity myth, or you go back and read the Stanford Review, which was the activist student newspaper that Peter Thiel started in 1987, I mean, it is like shades of the alt-right. It's The idea is we're going to say the unsayable. We're going to walk right up to the line, sometimes and often, I would argue, crossing the line on race, on gender, in order to kind of, you know, take the piss out of out of the liberal establishment. And that's kind of, he rode that to a, a sort of, you know, small time kind of stardom before he uh, became a tech investor. But I think that those ideas have been sort of baked into both the Peter Thiel project, and I would argue even a lot of the companies that he's been involved with, and a lot of kind of the valley as it exists today. I mean, we, we tend to think of Silicon Valley as being this, you know, very progressive, you know, countercultural thing. And it is, but there's this other thread. And the other thread is is kind of the Peter Thiel thread. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can say um, being from the Bay Area and seeing what Silicon Valley did to my hometown is very painful. You know, growing up in the 70s, we actually had already fought for all the civil rights and gay rights and women's rights. And then, you know, things turned around and greed was good again. And I look at Teal and the, the images of the folks that you had up there, and I just think the private life is dead. And these are the guys who did that to us. And it's, you know, we're going to talk about it. One of the questions we keep on getting from our viewers is, let's talk about Palantir. Let's talk about Palantir. There's a lot of concern about what has sort of infected democracy. And I think that the architects of this brilliant that they may be really have a lot of uh, questions to answer. And um, I also wanna just make sure that I do say that your book did an incredible job of painting the portrait of this lonely young boy. And I know being raised by German immigrants, you often have an authoritarian dad and that could not have been easy. And I think that's an important uh, element. You did a great job of really shaping the early years to kind of see how this man was created. Yeah, well, thank you. And I, I think it's really important. You know, Teal, uh, and I'm sure, you know, I've been guilty of this at times. You know, there are these myths, right, that are built up around people like Peter Teal, where, you know, he's either a superman or a supervillain. But I think it's really important to treat people like him as human beings as well, because if you really want to understand power, if you really want to understand the ideas that these people have, it's, it's more than just, you know, what they've done in business or whatever. It's, it's being able to kind of conceptualize them as, as people and as, as humans, because those values, the values that Teal has are, you know, I would argue baked into, you know, at the highest levels of these companies and most importantly, Facebook. So, you know, we got to understand him in the same way we'd want to understand like what a Supreme Court justice actually believes. You got to understand what like Peter believes. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting from a, you know, I'm a contemporary of his. I mean, we're sort of the same age. Uh, we're both gay. There's a, uh, I've met him once just for the record. There's a sense around this generation of gay people that, you know, we were in the closet for most of our young adult life, but then we're the generation that also came out of the closet in terms of gay marriage and the like. So it's a very unique gay generation in that there's no, been none like it before. But that first part of your life where you're compelled to be in the closet by maybe 
you know, just society or maybe just your own expectations or, or maybe it's real, you know, real threat to your ability to have a, a successful life. That threat is very, very real for a gay person or was very real for a gay person at that time. And so he, you know, likely like every other successful gay man I know from that period had built up a construct which was very precious to him, you know, built up an external exterior that was very precious to him and very carefully put together. So, you know, for him, that was a very specific shield that he held up against the world. And so, it, you know, when the Gawker thing happened, it was really interesting to me that he struck out so much because, for, you know, most people would have thought, who cares? He's gay. We all sort of knew he was gay. But it does feel to me like in his case, he would have felt it like a major, major affront because he was so nervous about that whole shield collapsing. The thing that he'd built, spent so many decades building, was going to collapse um, by the exposure that he was gay. Yeah, wow, that's a really, I mean, I think you've, you've put it really well. You know, I spent a lot of time digging into exactly what happened with Gawker, exactly like what caused it, and then kind of what Teal did, you know, afterwards. And I think, you know, your reading is correct. I mean, a lot of people have posited that maybe he wasn't, maybe he actually wasn't mad that Gawker had outed him. Maybe it was because they were writing negative stories about, you know, his hedge fund. They were doing, and this is something that's really important to, to talk about with Gawker mm. because, it, because it was complicated. They were doing things that I think most people would regard as journalistically unacceptable, as, right. as true violations of people's privacy. And they were doing really important journalism at the same time. So it's complicated. I think that what I've said and what I think is that, you know, if they hadn't outed him, you know, this wouldn't have happened. But I don't think it would have happened if they had also, it wasn't just that they outed him. They outed him. They violated his privacy as he saw it. And then they were very critical of him and people in his inner circle for years. And I think that kind of combination of this incredible you know, Peter Thiel is somebody who doesn't like to be put on the, you know, proverbial psychologist's couch, right? He wants to, you know, he's interested in projecting power. He's very serious. He's reserved. And so I think like that violation combined with this kind of relentless, very, very critical coverage of his hedge fund, just as his hedge fund was collapsing, those two things together, that's what caused it. But I don't think it happens without the uh, original post. And People think, oh, like Teal, you know, he finds Hulk Hogan and the rest is history, right? Because he backed this Hulk Hogan lawsuit, which led to $140 million or so uh, judgment that bankrupted Gawker and personally bankrupted Nick Denton, Gawker's publisher, and cost a bunch of people their jobs. But Teal had been working on this problem, you know, as he saw it for years before Hulk Hogan even enters into his life. There were attempts to deal with Gawker sort of in a more... Um, sort of more like negotiating, like sweet talking them, that kind of thing. Right. And also stuff that I think crosses the line into, you know, borderline, you know, ethically questionable behavior, like private investigators, like mm -hmm. trying to gather, you know, intelligence on what is going on with Gawker. And there were these other cases that were also going on, right, that were not quite as clear cut as the Hogan case, right, where the Hogan case was was like a, a gift that right. Gawker and Hulk Hogan and Charles Harder, you know, kind of delivered to Peter and, and this guy, Aaron D'Souza, who served as the cutout, right, delivered to Peter Thiel because there was no moral complexity with the Hulk mm. Hogan case. Like, I think most people, you know, Hulk Hogan is kind of a goofy, you know, reality show type figure, but I, I don't think like their sex tape was not defensible, right? right. And, and a Florida jury, a Tampa jury, where Hulk Hogan is from Tampa, he's like the most famous guy in the town. And there's this like, you know, snarky liberal, like they had no chance. And I think that that kind of 
thing that happened, you know, allowed Teal to prevail. But of course, it was the fact that he was out there looking for opportunities and then was willing to take this opportunity in a very kind of Machiavellian way, a way that I think most, even a lot of billionaires would have been hesitant to undertake is, you know, it, it says something about his character. And I think it both about and, and about his determination. And maybe you could say there's some, there's a kind of an evil genius quality yeah. to it too. But it does, I think, you know, make a lot of uh, people who care about freedom of expression really concerned. And like, I think, you know, I, I know there are a lot of smart people who could disagree about Gawker, right? And can talk. And and I think there's a good conversation to be had about the style of Gawker's journalism and et cetera. But I also think that like when you go and destroy a media company, particularly in the way this happened in secret and many years removed where, where, where the people who are being affected for the vast majority of them had nothing to do with that Peter Thiel post, right? Yeah. Um, it really, it, it's, it has a chilling effect. Yeah. And the chilling effect is really important to talk about it. It affects how journalists like myself potentially cover Thiel, but it's almost worse than that because it affects how journalists are able to cover any billionaire because mm. Thiel didn't just, didn't just put a flag down for himself, right? But anybody could take up the same, could use the same strategy or try to use the same strategy to intimidate any other journalist. So people keep asking, like, aren't you afraid of Peter Thiel? And I say, well, yeah, but like no more than I'm afraid of anybody else because mm. anybody could do the same thing and there's really nothing stopping him. And thanks to Thiel, he's created a playbook and a permission structure where mm -hmm. now if somebody else does it, they can just say, oh, well, well, Peter Thiel did it, did it and he's still, you know, more or less in the club. So it's it's fine if except, I do it. Except a, now that same thing could be turned around on him. I mean, this is his quote in the New York Times op-ed, I think the day after, maybe it was the day of his speech at the at the convention, he says, what I experienced would be minor in comparison with the cruelties that could be inflicted by someone willing to exploit the internet without moral limits, which is exactly something you could apply to Mark Zuckerberg today, you know, using his own ethical standards there. And then listening to the whistleblower today, you could apply all the same things you apply to Nick Denton, to Mark Zuckerberg. Yes, I, I would agree. And, uh, and, and there are lots of cases where Teal has, you know, had contact with or supported or provided financial funding to people who were doing things that, you know, were, were similarly, you know, weaponizing the internet in one way mm -hmm. or another. And so I, I think that the moral justification on the Gawker case, um, I understand it. And again, I, I've, smart people can disagree and there are people I respect to disagree, but I think it's, um, the moral calculus here is really, it's really flimsy. And it created a, a pretext for a lot of bad stuff. Also, when you're uh, this crusader for privacy, as Teal presented the Gawker case as, this is, he's going to make sure that these big tech companies don't take, you know, then uh, these evil leftist media entities don't violate people's privacy. Like you are an investor, you're the key investor in the most, in the single most privacy you know, it's it's not destroying, but like in a company that has basically unilaterally rewritten the privacy thing for everybody. And you are uh, the founder of Palantir. I mean, like, it's very hard to take the moral calculus seriously when, when it's coming from somebody who is involved with, with Facebook and Palantir and so many of these Silicon Valley companies. And you see this happening again and again in the sort of Tealverse where uh, right now, I, I'm sure we'll get to this, but you know, J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, these two Senate candidates who are running in Republican primaries, are banging the drum about Facebook, saying, "I can't, can't believe what's happening here." And it's like, well, there's a guy you could call. I don't, I don't know if you <laughs> have you considered calling, you know, the main backer to your super PAC and asking him. You, you, it's interesting. You I mean, you know, this is all very illuminating in terms of what Heidi was saying about her own growing up experience there in her city. But the 
you know, is Peter Thiel actually in a position now to, do you think he's advising Mark Zuckerberg differently than he would have in the past? Is, is he in fact saying to Mark Zuckerberg, so this is time to act differently. You shouldn't be in hiding as he is right now and, and avoiding the spotlight as he is right now. Or do you, or can you project yourself into that situation and see what Thiel is telling Zuckerberg? So this is speculation because yeah. when I was working on the book, you know, it kind of, whatever, I, I, I turned in the draft months ago. And so I don't have any inside information mm-hmm. into the negotiations that are going on right now between Peter Thiel and Mark Zuckerberg, but I can't speculate based on what I know. And I would say that I think the relationship between these two men, these two very powerful men, is very complicated and it's strained. I don't think it's lost on Mark Zuckerberg that Peter Thiel has been doing all sorts of stuff that have not been necessarily helpful to Facebook. You know, funding these far-right uh, Trumpist uh, Senate candidates who are turning Facebook into like a punching bag, funding and, and supporting a lot of the kind of activism within Silicon Valley that is specifically targeted Facebook, supporting lawmakers who have brought lawsuits against Facebook. So um, my guess is Zuckerberg is not asking for kind of day-to-day advice on how to manage this crisis, especially because right now, Thiel's political juice is pretty limited, right? Mm. I mean, the Democrats control the White House and both houses of Congress. I think this will change if Thiel manages to stay on the board past 2022 and the Republicans take the Senate, then Thiel's value to Zuckerberg goes up again. He has a little bit more influence. But my sense is like, you know, this is a strained relationship right now. Right. Although, you know, you mentioned Hawley. I mean, that's a that's a guy that you could call and say, stop your party from doing this. You know, Peter has ways to influence the situation if he wanted uh, yes. to. And he doesn't 100%. seem to want to. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe he doesn't want to. Maybe just, or maybe he's reading the, uh, the cards differently these days. You know, maybe the writing is on the wall for Zuckerberg. Maybe there really has to be a, a fundamental change in Facebook and Peter recognizes that. It wouldn't be the last, first time he abandoned someone at the end of the, uh, uh, of their you know, usefulness to him. Well, a hundred percent. Yeah. And it's, it's probably important to say that number one, he doesn't own a whole lot of Facebook stock, right? So mm. like his, um, the value of this board seat to him is not necessarily a financial value. It's, it's valuable as, as him creating a situation where he's a power broker. Now, the thing is, and this gets to the point you're bringing up, um, Teal has quite a lot of leverage against Mark Zuckerberg, because if Mark Zuckerberg mm. today says, you know what, this JD Vance, you know, he sees, he opens his phone, he sees JD Vance's latest tweet, he throws his phone against the wall and and decides he's going to fire Peter Thiel, calls his head of comms, drafts a a statement, fires Peter Thiel. Like that is going to be a horrible news cycle for Mark Zuckerberg. Mm. Peter Thiel getting canceled is like, that would be like a, you know, first of all, Peter Thiel is the kind of guy who would make wonderful hay with it. It would, you know, like I can guarantee there would be speeches and, Mm. you know, Tucker would be talking about (laughs) it. Trump would probably be talking about, you know, it'd be a huge news story because the pump is already primed for that news story. And Thiel has already sort of set himself up as the one guy you know, as as the kind of Trump faction of, of the Republican Party sees it, you know, the one guy who's really willing to kind of um, talk tough to Silicon Valley. So, like, I think it would be very, very difficult for Zuckerberg to fire Teal, even if, you know, I'm like, like I said, I'm sure he finds this abhorrent. And so I think the the um, the relationship as they are, as many relationships are, I think, in Peter Teal's kind of power structure, it's not one that's based on an, like on friendship purely. It's based, mm. maybe there is some loyalty, I think, and some friendship, but it's more based on power. And the, it's like, what is Teal giving Mark Zuckerberg and what is Zuckerberg giving to Teal? And right now, as uncomfortable as that is, they're both getting something out of that trade. Thank you for spending your time with Narrative and stay tuned. There's much more to this conversation in our next episode. 
narrative is made possible by viewers and listeners like you who join at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Join today and support truly independent journalism. Patreon.com forward slash narrative.